Please turn with me, if you will, in the scriptures to Jeremiah chapters 11 and 12. Uh, If you're using one of the church uh, pew Bibles, you'll find that starting on page 639. Uh, We're going to start in chapter 11, verse 18, and read through chapter 12, verse 6 as our opening reading uh, today. Jeremiah 11, 18. Grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word is eternal and abiding and worthy of our attention. The Lord made it known to me, and I knew, then he showed me their deeds. But I was like a gentle lamb, led to the slaughter. I did not know it was against me they devised schemes, saying, Let us destroy the tree with its fruit. Let us cut him off from the land of the living that his name be remembered no more. But, O Lord of hosts, who judges righteously, who tests the hearts and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you I have committed my cause. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the men of Anathoth, who seek your life and say, Do not prophesy in the name of the Lord, or you will die by our hand. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will punish them. The young men shall die by the sword, their sons and their daughters shall die by famine, and none of them shall be left, for I will bring disaster upon the men of Anathoth in the year of their punishment. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them and they take root. They grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. But you, O Lord, know me. You see me. You test my heart toward you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither? For the evil of those who dwell in it, the beasts and the birds are swept away because they said, He will not see our latter end. If you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with the horses? And if in a safe land you are are so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of Jordan? For even your brothers in the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. They are in full cry after you. Do not believe them, though they speak friendly words to you. So ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the heavens declare your glory. The skies proclaim your handiwork. Day to day they pour out speech, and night to night they reveal your knowledge. And yet it is your word that is perfect and revives the soul. It makes wise the simple. It brings joy to the heart. Your commandments are pure. They enlighten the eyes. Your word is to be desired more than gold. And so we ask that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. For you are our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. So what are your hopes in life, your goals your aspirations, what do you want to accomplish? What do you hope to become? I think everyone has their own answers for those questions. 
but there are common themes that run through them. Most of us want to be excellent in something. That might be a sport, music, art. Uh, It could be something more intellectual and academic. It could be leadership. It could be civic life and politics. It might just be your job, your career. It could be uh, your role as a parent. But most of us want to excel. Most of us want to be uh, good, great, amazing at something. And with that desire comes a, a, a longing to be recognized, admired. We abhor untamed ambition, but we also despise a complete lack of ambition, somebody who wants to do nothing with his or her life. That's unacceptable. And so we want some drive, but the problem is we tend to uh, measure success as the world does, by surpassing those around us, by being better, by watching our stars rise. And no doubt, Christians have their ways of making this sound spiritual. We have our versions of success and ambition. How many people have you led to the Lord? Check our comparison charts. We might want to have the biggest and most admired church. Leaders want to write books, get on the speaking circuit, have the most followers on their blog. But when was the last time you heard someone say, you know what I really want? Is to learn to be patient. Or, what I really aspire to is the ability to endure gracefully. Or, I'd really like the art of learning to remain learning to remain quiet when I want to speak. Because there's no glory in such statements. And we, it's okay, it's just you and me here, we could admit it. We like glory to be admired, esteemed. One of the ways our ambition reveals itself is in our quest for a unique and a spiritual experience with God. It's not uncommon to hear Christians say that they just desire some sort of gift of prophecy to have some direct connection with God, some unique revelation, just to hear his word. They think it would be great to be like Moses or Elijah or Isaiah or Jeremiah. But the problem is it often comes with a very casual uh, acquaintance with Scripture and the lives of those prophets and what they went to. It fails uh, to see the whole story. Because it focuses on the blessing of hearing directly from God, but it ignores what that meant for those who were called to be prophets. Would you really like to be like Jeremiah? Okay, Jeremiah was raised in a priestly family, you know, in, in religious service. I mean, this is the family business, right? His father, his uncles, his cousins would have all been priests, his brothers. They would have been uh, intimately connected with the religious life and service in Israel. And what's Jeremiah's job? It's to confront, confront the hypocrisy of the religious establishment in Israel. Talk about an awkward Thanksgiving dinner. 
Uh, He's going to have to point his finger at a lot of friends and family, not people who he doesn't know far off, but people who he's intimately acquainted with. Is that a job you would want? In our passage today, Jeremiah finds out what those friends and family really think of him. He's been betrayed by his father's house and family. He's an outcast, an exile. He's alone. He's a pariah. And he's going to complain to God. He's going to question God's goodness, God's love. After all, he's suffering unjustly. How could God allow this? He's suffering for doing the right thing. And God's response is simply, Jeremiah, welcome to my world. Because this is exactly what God has been dealing with for a thousand years or more. It's the reality that God endures every day. And Jeremiah's problem is that even though he is a prophet and has a direct line to God, he doesn't really understand who God is and what God values. And so God's going to have to help him understand. And God has two options on how to help Jeremiah understand that. He could either tell Jeremiah or he could show Jeremiah. And so God chooses the second option. He's going to show Jeremiah what it's like. As we look at this passage today, I think we could summarize it this way. God allows us to experience what he experiences in order to better understand him and to become more like him. He he allows us to experience what he experiences so that we might know him better, but also be more like him. And that's what's going on in Jeremiah's life, uh, as we'll see today. The heart of our passage, which is really an exchange between God and Jeremiah, begins in chapter 11, verse 18. That's why I started reading there. Uh, But to understand that exchange, we do need to understand what takes place before in those first 17 verses. Uh, The first part of chapter 11, God is basically saying, uh, the time has come. I'm going to bring all the judgments that I threatened in Deuteronomy through Moses. Uh, After the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, as Israel was coming into the promised land, uh, God warned them of his expectations. They were to follow him, they were to remain devoted to him and honor him, and if not, a time would come when they would lose their land, their homes, their farms, their uh, flocks, their crops, and ultimately their freedom. They would be carried away and enslaved by another land. God would give them over to their enemies and they would be carried away. And now God is telling Jeremiah, the time has come and Jeremiah, it's your job to go tell them. Verses 1 through 5, God says, uh, go remind them of their promises and the fact that they have broken them. In verses uh, 6 through 8, he says, make sure everybody knows. Don't just do this once. Don't pull a Jonah I want you to preach this over and over and over again in every village, in every street. Make sure everyone hears. And finally, in verses 9 through 13, Jeremiah was to let them know that the time to repent was past. God says, Behold, I am bringing disaster upon them. They cannot escape. Though they cry to me, I will not listen. It's final. He's waited patiently for a thousand years But rather than listen, 
Rather than repent, they have grown bolder in their sin. In fact, he even calls it in verse 9 a conspiracy. They're working together against him. It's a concerted effort against God. Helping each other in their rebellion. And so time for judgment has come. And yet Jeremiah struggles with this. God has to tell Jeremiah in verse 14 not to intercede. In fact, this is one of four times in the book of Jeremiah God has to say, Jeremiah, don't intercede. There are times to intercede and there are times not to. And Jeremiah, this is one of the not to times. The time for intercession has passed. Four times he has to tell Jeremiah that. And what that tells us is that Jeremiah wants to intercede. He wants to step in. He wants God's judgment to be postponed, to be stayed. He thinks God should be patient a little bit longer, maybe a lot longer. It's like Jeremiah is asking God, why are you in such a hurry? What's the urgency? Why so quick to bring judgment? Now, it's amazing how quickly what's your hurry can become what's taking so long. So starting in verse 18 of chapter 11, God lets Jeremiah in on a little secret. He tells Jeremiah, you're involved in a conspiracy of your own that you didn't realize. Jeremiah's father's household, his brothers, want to kill him. The people in his own hometown want him dead. And suddenly, Jeremiah is consumed by his circumstances. He says he feels like a lamb, a gentle lamb, being led to the slaughter. And so how does he respond? Verse 20, O Lord of hosts, who judges righteously, who tests the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them. For to you have I committed my cause. Well, get him, God. Let me see your vengeance. Are you a God of justice or aren't you? And then in chapter 12, why do the treacherous thrive? You see, he's struggling to understand why God allows wickedness to go unchecked. He wants those who are after him to become the sheep headed to slaughter, chapter 12, verse 3. Why am I the sheep going to slaughter? Shouldn't it be them? And then in chapter 12, verse 4, how long? How long will the land mourn and the grass of the field wither? How long do we have to put up with this kind of stuff? God is the Jeremiah who says, why rush to judgment? He's been replaced by someone who's eager. Judgment can't come fast enough. And what's changed? (laughs) What's changed is now it's Jeremiah's neck that's on the line. Now he's the object of the people's rebellion and evil and hatred. He was all about patience when it was God who was being attacked. Now that he's the one under attack, patience is so last week. Now's the time for action. Now's the time for judgment. Now before we judge Jeremiah too harshly, how often do we do the same? 
How often do we judge God for not being kind enough, patient enough, long-suffering enough, only to turn around and wonder where his justice is when it's we who have been wronged? Jeremiah is not unique here. It's, it's like looking into a mirror. And God's response is not what we expect. We expect maybe an explanation, maybe a rebuke, like with Job. But we don't expect what he says in chapter 12, verse 5. Jeremiah, if you have raced with men on foot and they've wearied you, how will you compete with the horses? That's God's way of saying, Jeremiah, it's about to get a lot worse. Jeremiah, I've been enduring these people's anger and hatred for a thousand years. You've been enduring it for a few minutes. I'm going to give you a taste of what I endure, what you told me I should endure more of. You've been running with men. And you're about to have the opportunity to race the horses. Jeremiah, welcome to my world. Jeremiah is about to get a graduate level course in patience and endurance. And God isn't going to tell him what patience is like. He's not going to give him a dissertation to go home and read. He's going to show him. But it's not just God's patience that Jeremiah is struggling to understand. He also doesn't understand God's justice. In chapter 12, verse 1, Jeremiah puts it this way. Righteous are you, O Lord. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? You can hear the tension in his confusion. If you're good, and you are good, God, why are the wicked prospering? Shouldn't your justice keep people like me from suffering? Why am I suffering for doing your will, for for simply declaring the truth? His assumption about God's justice is that it should mean that people like Jeremiah are kept from suffering, not that their suffering would increase. And in in chapter 12, verses 7 through 13, it's as if God is saying, Jeremiah, if that were true, would I suffer? Let me read those verses Chapter 12, verses 7 through 13. God says, For I have, saken, I have forsaken my house. I have abandoned my heritage. I have given the beloved of my soul into the hands of her enemies. My heritage has become to me like a lion in the forest. She has lifted up her voice against me, and therefore I hate her. Is my heritage to me like a hyena's lair or the birds of prey against her all around? Go, assemble all the wild beasts. Bring them to devour Many shepherds have destroyed my vineyard. They have trampled down my portion. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. They have made it a desolation, desolate. It mourns to me. The whole land is made desolate, but no man lays it to heart. Upon all the bare heights in the desert, destroyers have come. For the sword of the Lord devours from one end of the land to the other. No flesh has peace. They have sown wheat and have reaped thorns. They have tired themselves out, but profit nothing. They shall be ashamed of their harvest because of the fierce anger of the Lord. God has throughout this passage and really the whole book talked about the sins of his people, but here he makes it personal. 
Israel is his house, verse 7. They are his beloved. They have become like a lion seeking to devour him, verse 8, and are against him. He is describing betrayal of the worst kind. They've destroyed his land that he gave to them. They've despised his gifts. They have hated their God. God has suffered all that Jeremiah is enduring and more, and for a lot longer. And is he not righteous? Far more than Jeremiah. God is without sin. He has never done one thing wrong. If being righteous means not suffering, how can Jeremiah account for all that God has endured at the hands of his people? But the reality is that the wicked will always seek to oppress the righteous. God suffers what he does at the hands of his rebellious children precisely because he is good. And that's what Jeremiah doesn't understand. Until the final judgment, when all things are set right, the the very sort of thing that Jeremiah up until this point had been praying God would delay... Until that point, the righteous will suffer precisely because they are righteous. Again, Jeremiah, welcome to my world. But this doesn't explain why God delays the final judgment. Why is God patient? Why does he endure suffering for for righteousness' sake? Why doesn't he just drop the hammer once and for all? Jeremiah doesn't understand God's patience. He doesn't understand God's justice. But there's one more thing that he doesn't understand, and that's God's grace. Let's read the final few verses, chapter 12, verses 14 through 17. Thus says the Lord concerning all my evil neighbors who touch the heritage that I have given to my my people Israel to inherit. Behold, I will pluck them up from their land, and I will pluck up the house of Judah from among them. And after I have plucked them up, I will again have compassion on them, and I will bring them again, each to his heritage and each to his land. And it shall come to pass, if they will diligently learn the ways of my people and swear by my name as the Lord lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be built up in the midst of my people. But if any nation will not listen, then I will utterly pluck it up and destroy it, declares the Lord. In this final section, God shows us that he has one more surprise. After God brings judgment on his people, he will bless them. You see, judgment isn't his endgame. Blessiness. His patience and his justice lead to the blessing of his people Israel. Only through being brought low will his people learn their need. Will they learn to repent? Will they learn to seek God? Restoration and blessing await. But something even more surprising takes place. God says that same grace will be offered to the very nations that taught God's children to pray to false gods the very ones who will mistreat and enslave God's people will be offered the same salvation. They will be brought 
to dwell in and be built up in the midst of God's people, to dwell with them. In God's amazing way, he will even use the rebellion of his people to take that message of grace and forgiveness to the Gentile nations. And that's something Jeremiah also doesn't understand, couldn't comprehend, even though God has been promising it since the beginning, that God's patience and his justice lead to the blessing of the nations. That's a lot for Jeremiah to take in all at once. He didn't understand God's patience. He doesn't understand God's justice. He doesn't really understand God's grace. And all that is to say he doesn't really understand God. Jeremiah struggles with the very same temptation that we all struggle with, and that's to assume God is just like we are. Anything about me, God must be the same. We all try to reshape God in our own image. But God will have none of that because our calling is to be remade, be reshaped, to be conformed to his image, to his likeness. And we see who God is most clearly in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the embodiment of a patience that endures. His followers were constantly trying to get him to act with decisive judgment. taking out swords and cutting off ears and things like that. But Jesus waited patiently because he had a greater plan in mind. Jesus embodied a justice that suffers. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He did not suffer because he did something wrong. He suffered because he stood for what was righteous, because because he confronted sin. He was betrayed by his brothers who actually conspired to lead him to the most dangerous place in the land because they hated him because he testified that their deeds were evil. His neighbors closest to him despised him. The conspiracy against the Lord that we read about in Jeremiah comes to its full expression in the conspiracy to kill the Lord Jesus. Betrayed, lied about, a coup designed to shut him and his message up. But Jesus doesn't just embody the patience of God and the justice of God. Jesus embodied a grace that blesses. Because the reason he was patient, the reason he was willing to suffer for righteousness' sake was to bless those who afflicted him. On the cross, what does he pray? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Bless my enemies. Forgive my oppressors. Because God's way of patient suffering always leads somewhere. And that's not just true historically. It's true individually as well. God wasn't just showing Jeremiah who he is, but he's inviting Jeremiah to become like the God he follows. She's teaching Jeremiah to appreciate patience that endures. He's he's teaching Jeremiah to, to embrace justice that suffers. And he's teaching Jeremiah to love grace that blesses. The only way for Jeremiah to learn those 
realities, to really, really learn them, was to experience them. And through these lessons, Jeremiah will better appreciate God's patience and his justice and his grace. And you can picture the day when Jeremiah loves God's patience and his justice and his grace. And with a fatherly smile, God leans over and says, welcome to my world. But these things weren't recorded for Jeremiah's sake. They were recorded for ours. So that 2,500 years later, we would be able to read about a man from Anathoth and through his life start to make sense of our own. Because each of us struggles to understand God's patience. When God is attacked, we say, hold your judgment a bit longer. But when we're attacked, we say, God, what's taking so long? We struggle to understand how God could allow us to suffer for doing the right thing. We struggle to understand how all this could be leading to something glorious and wonderful in the end. And God knows that the only way for us to learn is to not just tell us, but to show us. And so God will make you wait when you don't want to. He will allow you to suffer injustice. And he will surprise you with blessings you never thought possible. And he will do all of this so that you might learn to appreciate patience that endures, to embrace justice that suffers, and to love grace that blesses. He's doing all of this to make you more like him. Because that's the greatest blessing you could ever hope for. God is allowing you to enter into and understand his world because he doesn't just want you to simply recognize or he doesn't want you to simply be recognized for being better at something than your neighbor as something maybe as important but passing as sports or art or civics or whatever. He wants something far greater for you. He wants you to be like him. These precious truths are are made visible for us in the bread and the wine that are before us. Indeed, our Lord Jesus was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He was unjustly convicted because the people hated him. They hated him because he was everything they weren't, patient, patient, just, and kind. But he is the God who brings blessing through suffering and through all he endured on the cross, he purchased salvation for his own people who had turned against him. And then he called people from among the Gentile nations to come and to be his own. As you take the bread and wine, God reminds you that these truths are not meant to be admired from a distance. They are to be taken in to become a part of you to shape you, to change you, that you might be more like your Savior. And so come and taste and see that the Lord is good. I'd like to ask uh, the elders to come forward that we might receive uh, the Lord's Supper this morning. And please bow with me in prayer.
Lord gracious God, there is none like you. We struggle to understand you mostly because you're not like us. You are most patient when you are attacked. You are just and willing to suffer for it. And you are gracious, gracious like we can't understand, blessing those who afflict you, willing to die in their, in their place, using apparent judgment to bring lasting blessing. We marvel at your grace, your love, and we long to be more like you. But that's a scary prayer because we learn it by entering into your world where our patience is tested and where we suffer for doing good. And so we ask that you would give us the strength we need to suffer with you in order that we might truly be welcomed into a world the likes of which we have never seen or imagined. Amen.